Yes, hello, how are we? You're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast, sponsored by Betfair. This is an express playoff semi-final first leg recap. Monday morning, bright and early. I'm Ali Maxwell, I've got George Alec next to me, two black coffees on the table. <laughs> We're here at the Belfry. Yes. Why are we here at the Belfry? We are playing in the Ed Chamberlain Wellchild Golf Classic 2023, which promises to be a lot of fun. We've got a Not The Top 20 team uh, which is exciting um i played in it a few years ago a great event lots of the biggest names in football in racing um and then us hey uh repping the efl we're repping the efl yes i mean there'll be a few i think there'll probably be a few maybe even current efl players here today so that's exciting we're recording at 8 20 on monday morning it just fits in quite nicely this is the one day where there aren't any playoff games but looking forward to getting out on the course it's an important day to raise money for well child which is the national charity for sick children uh, making it possible for children and young people with exceptional health needs to be cared for at home instead of hospital wherever possible uh, if you are listening to this podcast if you feel like you have uh, a little bit of disposable cash today even a fiver whatever it could be and please do consider donating it to well child that's who we as part of the ed Chamberlain Golf Day today are supporting here at the Belfry. Uh, we will try and update you with our scores, the slope rating of the Belfry, 145. So it's a pretty tricky test, I reckon. At NTT20pod on Instagram could be a good place to go. I'll make sure I post a couple of bits and bobs on there today. So get following. Uh, but George, this is about recapping the six playoff semifinals that we've experienced over the last four or five days or so. Most of them are in the balance. One of them feels very much not in the balance. We'll get to League One in just a sec. But let's start with the championship and with Sunderland 2, Luton 1. A preview in this one, we were excited to see how Sunderland flew out the traps with the array of attacking players that they have. We were also a little bit concerned about things like having barely any fit defenders. <laughs> As it is, George, they've won 2-1 against Luton from behind. Yeah, I must admit to being pretty concerned for Sunderland when Elijah Adebayo prodded home a set-piece scramble to put Luton 1-0 up. But needn't have worried, George, the Sunderland wheels keep on turning. And how? Yeah, it was a weird game where it felt like almost a two-legged playoff tie within one tie um, because Luton were by far the better side, in my mind, in the first half an hour of the game. Um, they went ahead through... Uh, Elijah Adebayo, um, he missed another very good opportunity, an unbelievable block from, um, I think it was 09, was it? Try Hume. Oh, it was Try Hume, um, who scored the... That's Jai Ho. Yes, another one. Um, and yeah, for that first half an hour, I thought Luton's shape out of possession was so impressive, where they were just nullifying the threats of, of basically all the players that we were concerned about. It was a bit of a surprise to see Tony Mowbray stick Patrick Roberts a kind of right wing back in a four. Like, a, a, you know, with when you consider that Lyndon Gooch is playing left back, it's unbelievable that they were able to be as solid as they were in the second half. I mean, I sort of had it as Gooch left centre-back. It was so weird. 9 centre-back, Hume right centre-back, Clark left wing back, Roberts right wing back. But as you say, and it was mentioned on the commentary, they were almost defending in like three and a half with yeah. Roberts sort of nominally defending but not if he could help it but, but the way and the way that Luton were, were set up which is how they normally do is they're not necessarily a team who press relentlessly they kind of sit in this block 
not particularly deep, kind of a mid-block, and then look, look to press the ball wherever possible. And Sunderland just couldn't get out. Like, for, even at 1-0, they were struggling to get any territory. They were struggling to get Ahmad Diallo on the ball um, or any of the players who we know can impact games on the ball, really. And as is often the case with quality players, it was one moment of absolute magic from Ahmad Diallo against the run of play, I would say, from a set piece um, where he, you know, whipped, as we've seen him do so many times, he whipped it with his left foot into the top corner, an unbelievable strike to make the game one all. And that strike from Diallo was a turning point of this game, possibly of the whole tie, because in the second half, Sunderland were by far the better team. It was it was then Luton who couldn't get out, Luton who couldn't get the ball to stick in the final third at all. Sunderland dominated possession uh, inside Luton's half, which we haven't seen many teams really do to Luton. Like Normally, you know, they're not a possession-heavy side, but territory for Luton has always been, been pretty, you know, their strong point under Rob Edwards, where they don't let teams kind of have it anywhere near their, their final third. And... Suddenly, it was it was Diallo and Roberts down the right hand side. Jack Clark, for the set, for the last half an hour of the game, was on fire. And as I, I tweeted at the time, when he's in that kind of a mood, and a couple of people replied saying it's kind of Grealish esque, and it is where he's just got that ability to get on the ball. He's so tidy on it in terms of his dribbling ability, but also his ball retention as well. One thing that confused me is that I've always been a real fetishist for two-footed players. Part of your tweet about Jack Clark being so watchable and so good in full flow was something to do with how one-footed he is. I love I'm it. thinking, like, is that a direct shot at me? No, no, because I agree with you that two-footed players are always, you know, it's generally a strength. But I think watching a player, you know, a right-footed player play on the left-hand side who is so right-foot dominant is just quite entertaining because you know that every time they got it, um, the defender's going to try and show them outside, but he has the ability to always come back onto his right foot. And then his delivery with his right foot from, from left, from that left-hand side, which is quite a rare skill to have, is brilliant. And that's what got um, Trihume the goal. Uh, a brilliant ball from uh, Clark. And I don't think you can underestimate how difficult ahead of that was, really. Like, the ball was kind of behind him. Hume had to kind of check his movement and still got enough purchase on it to send it into the far corner. Um, so... You know, I'm sure Sunderland fans listening to this who wouldn't have enjoyed my analysis of the game when I started, the, the important thing to say here is that Sunderland were absolutely deserving of their of their win here, despite not really being able to get a foothold in the game in the, in the first half an hour. I think Luton will probably come away from the game feeling quite relieved that it was only 2-1 and they didn't concede another because you know coming back from two goals behind was going to be difficult. Um, and Sunderland, you know, we keep saying this and I made a lot of the injuries uh, that Sunderland have got in terms of their their defensive issues, but you look at their fixtures. You look at the you know their, their run of results since um, the injuries to to Bat to Ballard um, to Alesse, and they're just winning games. I mean, they're not keeping many clean sheets, but it doesn't really seem to matter too much. Um, incredibly impressive, and it is set up beautifully for <laughs> Tuesday night at the Kenny. I bet it's right to make a big deal of the injuries because you shouldn't be able to win professional football matches in England's second tier, playoff games as well against the other, well, almost the best teams at the level. You shouldn't be able to win them with the injuries that they have and with the players playing out of position to the extent that they are. Um, it, it adds to the feeling that there's something a bit special going on here. And I know that the Sunderland fans are certainly feeling that. I'd be very, very proud of that performance and that win if I were a Sunderland fan because, as you say, they did not have it easy. What we thought was going to happen, more or less did happen in the first half an hour. Uh, and I sort of, 
you know, nodded sagely when Luton stabbed home a set piece because... Do you ever nod any other way? <laughs> I don't know any other way of nodding. Uh, because, you know, at every set piece, it felt like every Luton attacker had at least a two-inch height advantage over the person marking them. You could even see with the deliveries that Jordan Clark was taking, it was this, like, high wedge-like delivery just to put it up in the air. There was no whip on it. wasn't trying to whip and dip it into the near post or curl it on top of the keeper. It was about hitting it basically deep because you're so confident of winning the first contact. Of course, that is where the, the goal came. And I thought that's just how it would continue from that point, but not at all. It was such a, a brave team performance. And I think bravery in football comes in, in a few forms and that this Sunderland team kind of showed all of them uh, defensively. You have to be brave. Of course you do, particularly against two strikers like Morris and Adebayo. They're up against it massively, that back line. And the goal they conceded did kind of show that and demonstrate why we felt they were up against it. But they still battled after that. They were still aggressive. They didn't shy away from it. They didn't shrink in the face of, of difficulty. They made blocks uh, like that one that Hume made. But also bravery on the ball. And this generally comes from the midfield players and the forward players. I mean, we, we knew that that lot, Roberts and Diallo and Clark and Pritchard, we knew they were small, dribbly, technical types. But this was like on another level entirely. And it takes bravery to accept that you're going to be so... I mean, just look after the ball in tight areas like that and, and not sort of modify because of the nerves of the occasion. Roberts and Diallo down the right side had some wonderful combinations. But for me, the big name was Equa in midfield. Um, I mean, the gonads on Equa, who <laughs> it's the first time he's ever completed 90 minutes in a senior league wow. match, if you count this as a league match. Um, and boy, has he got some confidence on the ball. And you can see why he's that rangy, dribbly, technical central midfield player. A lot of high risk, high reward ball carrying in the centre of the park, I think it's fair to say. And he does have to be careful, you know, not to overdo it and not to give the ball away too much. But I also think the bravery that he had on the ball, taking it sometimes in his defensive third and just putting his head down and, and jinking his way through and winning some fouls. I think that set the tone, uh, a, a tone of confidence. So... Really impressive. Uh, who scored reckons they attempted 48 dribbles in the game and completed 20 of them. Now, when I tell you that in the whole regular season, Sunderland were the dribbliest team in the championship and they attempted 24 per game and completed 10 on average. So on Saturday, they attempted and completed twice as many as usual. Uh, it just shows that the way that they were, they were asked to play by Mowbray, the bravery that they were asked to show on the ball, uh, and it came, it came out well for them. Um, but also the physical stuff, the battle. The, the occasion, you know, a lot's been made of, of Sunderland's home fans and incredible support that they gave their team on Saturday. But you can't get away from the fact that Sunderland almost always have uh, very vociferous and uh, voluminous home support. And the players haven't always stepped up and used that to, to harness good performance. They haven't been great at home this season. But here they were. They were up for the battle. And even though they are small and young and, and technical rather than ball winners, rather than fighters... They still enjoyed that side of things. You know, it was quite a niggly game. There were a lot of fouls. I would say both sides were basically as bad as each other in terms of trying to buy fouls and cheap free kicks. But also, like, I know a lot of neutrals don't like this stuff. But if you've ever played, even in the park or on a Wednesday night or a Sunday league, if you've ever pet played competitive, aggressive football, like, you need that. Have you? you? Yeah, every, <laughs> every week. You need to enjoy that side of things because if you don't fancy it, then you will lose. And no one likes to lose. Um, before we move on, any theories on what happened with Luton here? Because they were in such a strong position at 1-0 up and yeah, the, the standards really dropped and kind of never came back. 
yeah, it's a difficult one to work out. Yeah, I do think the Diallo goal was, was a turning point. Maybe that's just the case of um, the psychology of, of knowing you've played incredibly well for 35 minutes and then conceding to a wonder strike. It's quite hard to bounce back from. I also think that in the second half, there was probably an awareness that the tie was somewhat going away from them and to commit too many men forward may have been um, you know, a kamikaze mission that could have seen the tie ended, really, given the, the threat that the Sunderland have on the break. So... In a way, even though they were really poor in the second half, keeping the scoreline down, being able to take the, the the tie back to, you know, although the home record isn't great, back to the Kenny and um, still be in it isn't the worst outcome. So, you know, this is still very much alive. But if Sunderland put in a performance uh, like the second half, um, then it's hard to see Luton coming back from, from, from the position they're in. Very nicely in the balance. You could say the same about Coventry and Middlesbrough, who head to Borough for the second leg at nil-nil. It was not necessarily a blood-and-thunder, rock-and-roll, goal-mouth-laden match. Uh, I've seen a bit of moaning from the neutrals about this one. Uh, I enjoyed the tactical battle, as discussed pre-game. I thought it played out more or less how we were expecting in that Coventry, as discussed. I would say their primary objective even though others may not think this is the right way of going about a home leg, was not to let Middlesbrough score, not to let Middlesbrough have space to play through. So you could see Coventry's back five and their midfield three keeping a really, really tight shape, um, sitting not unbelievably deep, but certainly not coming onto Middlesbrough whatsoever. They were really patient, out of possession, and it was only in their own final third where they decided to, to engage with the ball. Uh, they basically dared Middlesbrough to cut through them and Borough are able to do that and have been able to do that to almost every opposition this season since Michael Carrick took charge. And in the first half an hour, they did. Uh, Akpom in particular with a big chance, a, a great save from Ben Wilson, um, tipping it up and looping over and bouncing off the bar. Uh, Isaiah Jones had a goal disallowed, a run in behind, really the first time that, that Coventry got caught too high, I guess, um, but he was just offside. He had a couple of interesting moments. Um, and Coventry in possession in the first half was certainly disappointing. And I could see why at halftime a lot of people scratching their heads saying, well, what's the big deal about this Coventry side? Because, as discussed, they were sitting so deep. Part of that is in order to initiate counterattacks for Jokeres, in particular to exploit space at the back. But Tommy Smith, Burroughs right back, just held his position, was basically part of a back three out of possession with McNair, with Lenehan, Giles pushing up high and left as always. And I think Smith really helped kind of mitigate against Jokeres' threat. But also you can't get past the fact that Paddy McNair had one of the games of his life defensively. Uh, it's a part of his game that has uh, been questioned at time, 1v1 defending, physicality as a centre-back. But he handled Jokeres unbelievably well uh, and Gjok did have a tough game you could see him drifting deeper and wider and on the few occasions where he did get the ball he was too far from goal really to make anything happen so yeah I'd say first half Borough on top Coventry not quite connecting uh, with their uh, counter-attacking and then in the second half they did settle a little bit Cov they came into the game they probably had the better of it in the second half still not a huge amount by way of chances uh, I was very impressed with how they defended. Um, Borough did have one or two chances in that first half, but overall, I still think the approach from Coventry was the right one. I'm sure it'll be a similar approach uh, at the Riverside. And George, this one really is set up to be, you know, th- there's a bit of moaning about some of the first legs being a little bit boring. But playoff football's about the uh, the destination, not the journey. And, and we should have a pretty exciting second leg. 
most playoff football is quite boring because <laughs> it's high it's a high stakes affair um I probably thought that there was going to be a game which could have a lot of goals and a lot of attacking threat. It was this, but it kind of turned out to go the other way. I think Coventry will will be buoyed by the fact that they restricted a free-scoring Borough side to just five shots in the whole game. The issue, I guess, is that the opportunities that Borough did create, um, you know, the the Akpom, um, you know, the save that they hit the crossbar, Isaiah Jones missing a decent opportunity. Again, the Isaiah Jones, Jones goal that was chalked off like when they did create opportunities, they were quite good ones, and that might be an issue when they go back to to Borough in the second leg. Um, but again, very tight here, and I think Coventry, Mark Robbins certainly will think, well, if we can restrict Borough to those that few opportunities again, turn this into a really low margin game. There's no reason at all why Coventry can't get the goal needed to go through or take it to extras. So um, yeah, I don't think this is a. Even though Coventry may feel frustrated they didn't get a win at home. I don't think either side would come away from the game on, on Sunday feeling too disappointed. Tuesday night, Luton, Sunderland. Wednesday night, Middlesbrough, Coventry. Clear your schedules. We've got two big semi-final second legs in the champ. Uh, in League One, Sheffield Wednesday will host Peterborough on Thursday night and they will host Peterborough. 4-0 down, George. An incredible, ginormous performance from Peterborough United, the sixth-place team in League One, beating the third-place team. And then 96 points by four goals to nil. Goals from Jack Taylor, from Joe Ward, from Kwame Poku, and of course from Johnson Clark Harris. It's only the fifth time in history that a team has won by a four goal or more margin in a playoff semi-final first leg. Chesterfield four, Stockport nil in 1990. Crew five, Walsall one in 93. Birmingham nil, Barnsley four in the year 2000. And Dagon Red six, Morecambe nil in 2010. Those stats courtesy of Richard Foster, who has literally written the book on the playoffs. George, this was the first game of the semi-finals, certainly the most dramatic. What the hell happened? It's so difficult to analyse this game in my head because there's no denying at all that Peterborough weren't fully deserving um, of the, the win and the wide margin of that win as well. But there are some moments in this game that were you know, real sliding doors moments, probably for their whole seasons of these two clubs, where the first two goals are wholly avoidable with massive slices of luck, um, where Cameron Dawson, is it's one of the worst shot-stopping mistakes I've seen this season, where he lets the ball in at his near post. It's so good um, for the most part as well. And, and it, there's an irony here where a lot of Wednesday fans... Their main criticism of uh, of Darren Moore, one of the main criticisms of Darren Moore, Darren Moore this season was his decision to having initially swap Stockdale for Dawson, for then switching back to bring to bring uh, Dawson, uh, Stockdale back in before that bad run. Um, so there's an irony here that it would ended up being Dawson with the pivotal moment probably in the game, probably in the tie, and probably in their season really. Um, but at the same time, your goalkeeper is a fairly important part of your team. And if your goalkeeper makes a massive mistake, then that's not necessarily bad luck. It's just a player not performing up to their to their, to their their standards and their ability. The second goal, however, is definitely unlucky, where it's a Joe Ward shot from miles out. A huge deflection sends it dipping over the keeper, has no chance. Um, and suddenly they're 2-0 down, thanks to a keeper error and a, and a, um, and a deflected shot. From there on in, and listening to Darren Moore's interview afterwards, he kind of said, it, looked, it sounded weird for someone, if someone hadn't watched the game, where he was like, we lost control of the game at 2-0. Mm. 
which you're kind of thinking like, hold on, Darren, if you're 2-0 down, have you not already lost control of the game? But I could kind of see what he meant where from 2-0 down, suddenly Wednesday had to commit more men forward and therefore we saw with that brilliant counter-attacking goal for the, um, the Kwame Poku header, how things, um, the amount of space that Sheffield Wednesday left open behind them, that's not what they're normally like. They're normally incredibly resolute and solid. Um, and then brilliant clearances from Ronnie Edwards and, and Frankie Kent to, to stop Wednesday getting back into the game too. So, you know, big moments in these games are what are so important. And normally it's quite rare, I think, in one 90-minute game to have so many big individual moments. But that is what happened here. And all of them to go the way of one team. And all of them went, went in Peterborough's favour. And that's that's definitely, you know, this might sound like it's, it's t- trying to take some agency away from Peterborough's win. And I'm not trying to do that because you know, Edwards deserves credit. Kent deserves credit. Clark Harris and Poku for their finishes. Clark, Mason Clark for the brilliant cross. Um, although when you watch the slow-mo replay and it kind of takes a huge bobble before he hits it and you're wondering, has he got a bit lucky there? But I'm going to give him credit for it anyway. Um, you know, these in these big moments, these players stepped up and produced the quality that was needed where Sheffield Wednesday in these big moments did not. And that is, at the end of the day, what, what decides football matches. It doesn't really matter if Wednesday outshot Posh or the rest of it. Is this tie over? Mm, probably, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but similarly, you wouldn't put it past Wednesday to be one or two goals to the good at half time and if that is the case then I just love that you teed yourself up for like a big moment and a big opinion there just closing the door on Wednesday and then you've just gone probably well no I think you have to I'm not going to sit here and be like this tie is done it is like for any it's Sheffield just not Wednesday much of a headline fans, is it George Ellick thinks this tie is probably over that's not yeah, what, that's we what are, everyone mate. thinks mate. There, there are other podcasts who do that <laughs> who just try, try and give you headlines <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying what, what is the realistic uh, state of this of this two-legged game and you know we discussed um a, a friend of ours uh, who's a Wednesday fan um I think we know has mentioned that maybe is it even worth going to the game on uh, on uh this week and I'm sure he will go and I'm sure Wednesday fans will go because at the end of the day every great comeback in sporting history has started by <laughs> an aberration and, and go miles behind to start with I mean th- 99% chance Posh will go through um, but Wednesday have shown themselves at times this season to be a pretty irresistible force as well so but an unbelievable I mean for, for Posh to get into the playoffs the way they have done to beat a team who've got the 13th highest points tally in League One history 4-0 um, is remarkable I think again you have to ask questions of Wednesday in terms of their mental state when the pressure is on but we also know when the pressure's off they're a pretty good team and maybe that's going to see them um, you know shed put in a better performance but um yeah peterborough certainly with a foot and a half in the uh, in the playoff final yeah they just they're a disastrous team to play against when you're already 2-0 down i think and when your game plan has gone out the window because of their impish excellence particularly on the counter-attack we saw that with the third goal arguably with the fourth goal as well the, the quality that they have in the front three and particularly with Taylor as well supporting them from midfield means that you, you really cannot afford to commit too many men forward against Peterborough of course when you're 2-0 down you do feel like you have to do that um, we should mention Norris you know Dawson's error for the first goal a huge moment probably the most important moment in the game well Norris had already made two massive saves at the other end one from Smith at 0-0 when uh, Smith had 
pretty much a one-on-one, uh, just telegraphed his, his effort and Norris dived and pushed it away. Then a brilliant save from Windass at 2-0. Again, you feel if, if Wednesday had pulled it back to 2-1, given that they'd created the odd chance and given that Posh's first two goals had an element of luck about them, the game you know, would have been back to being more or less on a level playing field. But no, Norris was the one, first and foremost, that stepped up for Posh. But all 11 of the starters, you have to say, were brilliant. Kent and Edwards did a great job against Michael Smith, um, better than I thought they would, and huge credit for that. Didn't think Wednesday tested them nearly enough uh, in terms of, of decent delivery into the box uh, and, and the height advantage that they have. Uh, maybe that's something they'll try in the second half. They sometimes seem to be stuck between wanting to play more of a sort of patient possession-based style, which I'm not sure fully suits the squad that they have or the starting eleven that they have, uh, and maybe not wanting to just shell it and go long and, and pump balls into the box. But I, I would argue that that could be the way to go, even if it's not the most pleasing aesthetically. Uh, Ward, the right back, again, I questioned him defensively but he was excellent uh, against Marvin Johnson in particular um, Burrows was good on the other side and, and had a nice moment in the build up towards goal Norburn and Kiprianu did their job well in the pivot Bannon didn't have a big impact on the game at all but Jack Taylor's the one for me I mean he was exceptional again I really feel like in the last few months he's become a, a proper star at League One level and someone who has to be playing in the championship next year whether it's for Peterborough having one promotion or whether it's for someone else because of the energy he brings his speed his directness um, and he's such a threat as well as we saw scoring the first goal but also hitting the post in the build up to the fourth uh, Clark Harris didn't do a huge amount but nodded in his goal at the end 4-0 a huge win for Posh they just need to keep it tight you'd think for the first half hour against Wednesday uh, and they should be heading to Wembley for the record those four games with a four goal or more margin in the first leg let me tell you what happened in the second leg Chesterfield had won 4-0 against Stockport in 1990 they won 2-0 in the second leg for a 6-0 aggregate win Crew. They'd won 5-1 against Walsall and they won the second leg 4-2. So that was a 9-3 aggregate score in 93, which is nice. Birmingham won 2-1 after losing 4-0 at home to Barnsley. So that one was 5-2 on aggregate. Uh, and Morecambe also came back and won the second leg 2-1 uh, against Dagon Red, having, won, having lost 6-0. So 7-2 on aggregate. Uh, so there's never been a dramatic comeback to the extent that Wednesday need. But never say never. Uh, George Bolton won, Barnsley won. Really nicely set up for Thursday night at Oakwell, Friday night rather at Oakwell. Uh, we're going to be at the second leg and we cannot wait to see uh, what it brings because the first leg was a, a good game, a very competitive game and 1-1. Yeah, it was a really good game. Um, and again, a tie that is delicately poised. I think Barnsley were the favourites going into it. I think Barnsley are still the favourites going into the game at Oakwell because... I thought they were the better t better team on the day. Um, I think Bolton, you know, will feel fairly happy on the balance of play that they managed to come away level. They'll hope to put in a better performance um, on the game on on Friday next week. Um, Dion Charles missed uh, missed the best opportunity in the first half though, blazing over the bar. Um, but you know, Barnsley's relentless pressure, their energy off the ball was just unbelievable. And when Nicky Cadden put them ahead, it felt to me like the the opportunity was probably there for them to try and kill the tie there and then. But Massive credit to Bolton, um, Charles getting his goal, uh, albeit somewhat fortuitously. I think Harry Estead might want to take that one again, you know, parrying the ball. You know, it's that classic case of um, not really getting enough perched on it, parrying it back into an area where you don't really want to push it and end up kind of coming off um, the nether regions of Charles into the back of the net. Um, you know, I think for to, to kind of um, honest Ed himself, like it is 
it's an unbelievable season that he's had or half a season since coming in um, from Luton on loan when you consider that he'd barely played any regular first team football outside of non-league before coming into a massive pressure cooker at, at Barnsley keeping a load of clean sheets and he's a big reason why they are where they are um, but that wasn't his finest moment um, and I do think that they will be yeah I mean they'll be pretty buoyed by the performance I think any concerns over Barnsley's form at the back end of the season it was interesting to hear Mike Duff uh, before the game in his interview you know he was the manager who had spoken a lot about keeping standards up and how important it was for the rest of the league he then with a wry smile said it's you know as much as you talk about keeping standards up it's very hard to do that when you know you're finishing fourth and um, certainly they, they return back to the level where we expect them to be off the back of that so a good performance from them Bolton um, as we'd expect, had had more of the ball, were unable to really get it into um, into advanced areas. A very very tasty duel developing between Connor Bradley and Nicky Cadden, who just kept fouling each other. Or and there was one unbelievable tackle from Bradley on on Cadden, which is like the when you're having like that personal duel with someone, it's absolutely perfect. Where he took all of the ball and then afterwards just took all of Cadden. Um, so that should be good. We're going to be at Oakwell. I'm looking forward to seeing that, hopefully on, on our flank for some of the game. Yes, um, sir. But yeah, a great game. And I'm, I, I think of all of the, probably of all six ties as a neutral, if I could pick one game I wanted to go to second leg of, having seen the first, it would be this one. Well, I've got good news for you. <laughs> See you on Friday night, Barnsley and Bolton fans. Yeah, can't wait for that. Enjoyed this one as well. I think it's worth shouting out the other goalkeeper, James Trafford, who made some very sharp saves. He comes off his line so quickly, (laughs) smothers the shots. Um, He's so confident. I know that from reading a lot of uh, stuff from Bolton fans and and Bolton local media, he's become like a huge leader for this team at such a young age. And I would say for Manchester City and also for England, his development in the last year has been incredibly exciting um, and uh, Ricardo Santos was great as well in the back line defensively I thought he was he was absolutely excellent I didn't think Bolton's midfield had a huge impact on the game Sheehan, Morley, Dempsey none of them necessarily having the impact that I was uh, hoping for I guess and even the forward line Charles despite his goal I think struggled a little bit I didn't think uh, his partner uh, was particularly helpful either Mr Kachunga so um, food for thought for ever heading back to Oakwell as for Barnsley was huge for them getting Mads Anderson back and fit having missed a couple of the last uh, games of the season I think that they played pretty well um, and I think that with the home advantage uh, I'm leaning Barnsley I'm leaning Barnsley I think Norwood might start the second leg and I have a funny feeling he could have a big say. In League Two, George, uh, two 1 0 wins for the home team is a pretty tantalising setup for second legs. Salford 1, Stockport 0. Feels like not a huge amount happened in this game outside of a big 90 seconds or so in the first half, in which a loose touch from Callum Hendry in midfield allowed Stockport to break quickly. Uh, Connor Evans had a powerful shot kept out by Cairns and Crowsdale, very much a defensive-minded midfielder with a nosebleed in the opposition box, uh, could only hit the bar with a rebound. And then up the other end, Salford won a throw. Uh, Some patient play from Shepard and Bolton, the right back and the right winger, um, just created a bit of space for Elliot Watt to drift out to the right. Can he deliver a KDB slash Trent Alexander-Arnold S cross onto the head of Matt Smith? You bet he can. <laughs> 1-0 Salford. What do you think of the goal? Uh, I loved it. I loved did, the did, duel. Did, did you Smith... think it was a fully legal goal? Yes. Interesting. I think I... that Smith and Horsfall 
were grappling each other to the exact same extent. And I absolutely loved, I, I loved it so much, I filmed a video off the TV using my phone, zooming in I on- I didn't post it. Zooming in, I did not post it. Zooming in on Matt Smith's face as it cut to the close-up of him, and he was shouting something that I won't mention back at Fraser Horsefall, because they clearly are having such a physical centre-back versus centre-forward duel, and he had won that battle, and he was letting Horsefall know I, I it. I think he won the battle the whole, the whole game. It felt like me to me like it was like, Touch and go whether or not it was a foul. Touch and go whether or not it was a handball. Um, but handball didn't even think of that. I kind of hit like it didn't hit his head and like yeah. hit his kind of up between the it elbow and the shoulder. It was quite messy. I'll give you that. Um, but I, 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 you know, two halves don't make a whole. <laughs> mm, yes, they do. Any maths fans out there? When when it comes to fouls, two halves <laughs> do not make a whole. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, probably fair enough. Yeah, it was a, a kind of weird game where it felt like. Once Salford went one nil up, it was a um, result they were probably quite happy with. When Stockport went one nil down, they were probably like, "Well, let's make sure we don't lose by more than one goal." And that's kind of what Challenger said after the game. He was like, "Yeah, we're, we're still very much in this. Like, it's not, it's no disaster." Um, definitely some issues in terms of personnel being missing for Stockport here. Um, you know, Collar was missing as well as the uh the Witten injury that we spoke a lot about um no Paddy Madden either. Paddy Madden as well although you know he's played a bit of a bit part role in recent weeks anyway but maybe that's due to injury um they weren't at their most threatening by any stretch um they weren't at their most threatening no yeah no offense he, to Jack Stratton up front but he didn't he didn't have much to feed off no um it's gonna be an interesting second leg this one now because we know that Stockport are a team who are built on their defensive solidity but they need goals and they're coming up against a, a Salford side who aren't necessarily the most solid defensively but, but did pretty well I think both Vassell and Mariapa were, were superb and dominant in, in their in their duels so um, yeah it's Salford now the favourites to qualify I'm not necessarily sure it changes too much in the tie in my mind where um, you know you have to think if Stockport we're going to get through this one they'd probably have to win at home at Edgley Park anyway so um, yeah it, it wasn't the best spectacle, but, but another one where it's uh, it's well poised for the for the second leg. You'd certainly expect longer periods of more intense Stockport pressure at Edgeley Park than we saw here. However, you'd also be pretty terrified of Bolton, Hendry, Barry if he starts on the break. So Stockport are going to have to play it quite smartly, I think. I was disappointed with how they played. I, I recognise that those injuries are really damaging. That's their two best strikers. That's their most uh, threatening central midfielder, Collar, and all the goals he scored this season. But it was more the fact that they packed the midfield with bodies. It was Stretton up top with, with Evans as a 10, with Hippolyte and Camps as the 8s, and Crowsdale at the base. It's basically a diamond in midfield with three centre-backs and wing-backs. And yet, Watt and Mallon two centre mids for Salford, still seemingly had some pretty good time on the ball, were able to find space and pop passes between them and through the lines, probably more so than I would have expected when I when I saw the shape that Stockport went with. So I was a little disappointed on that front. Um, but some impressive moments for, for Salford. Bolton, uh, a danger down the right side, and Matt Smith did his job brilliantly. I do suspect that he, he might not play in the second leg just because Salford are probably going to prioritise speed on the break um, and maybe an extra body in midfield um, or even in defence. So that's something to, to look at. But I think, as you've suggested, both sides probably feeling pretty happy and, and extra motivated heading into the second leg on Saturday. It was the same scoreline at, at Valley Parade, George, on Sunday night. Bradford won, Carlisle nil. Also a first-half goal. This one from Jamie Walker. 
bit of an ugly goal from a Carlisle point of view. Just kind of an aerial duel from a ball forward. The second ball was not handled. Whelan was out of position and just kind of trotting back and the gap that he left just wasn't closed properly by um, Huntingdon and, and Armour between them. Uh, Walker um, sort of bushing his way through and then slamming home uh, past Tomash Holy. Uh, only three shots on target in total in this game, so another pretty low margin affair and, and maybe it's a similar situation with Stockport and Salford where both teams were not too gutted with the 1-0 the scoreline and, and going after another. Uh, there was a good chance from Scott Banks that was saved from Holy when he was in a pretty questionable uh, position I must say uh, and Carlisle's shot on target was a McCalmont volley from range uh, straight into the hands of Lewis I would say Carlisle finished the stronger in the second half mm. they came on pretty strong they, they they probably played the better football in an attacking sense I thought Bradford's attacking play was very disjointed um, they, they played long into Cook which is an understandable way of playing but because Hughes chose to go with an, an extra midfielder in Clayton. It means that Clayton, Smallwood, Gilead, none of them attack-minded, really. Um, it meant that, that Banks off the right and Walker off the left until his injury. She didn't really feel like Cook had any support whatsoever, and he was pretty isolated. So they did get a goal from, from a situation that was created by a long pass and, uh, and a second ball being won and, a, and a, quick, a quick pass and a quick finish. But generally, I was a little bit let down by their attacking play. So very much all to play for, I think, heading back to... Brunton Park yeah definitely um you know and, and a big result for Bradford who are now favorites to to win the league two playoffs I'd say my biggest takeaway from this is that Carlisle in a similar way to what I mentioned a second ago with, with Barnsley putting some pretty disappointing performances towards the back end of the season to one side I thought they were way better second half created plenty of chances looked very good I thought the substitutions that they made in terms of uh, certainly bringing, bringing Dennis on made a difference. Um, you know, they're blessed to have kind of four strikers they can rotate between. And, you know, they, they will feel, even though they lost 1-0, you know, there was, for a team who really struggled to score goals recently, at least they were creating opportunities. Edmondson probably missing the pick of them with that header, which he put over the bar. So, um, yeah, I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot here, but it's a tie that's very much in the balance. And I think Carlisle fans will certainly go to the game um, thinking that if their team can put in a similar level of performance, then at the very least, they can take it to extras. It's almost all delicately poised. You could uh, certainly make a case that Sheffield Wednesday nil, Peterborough 4 heading into the game at Hillsborough is going to be too much to overcome. But outside of that, you have to say, they are all finely balanced. It's a reason why we love the playoffs. Uh, we've enjoyed the first legs, but I have a feeling the second legs are going to be highly dramatic. Thanks for listening to this uh, playoff semi-final first leg recap uh, brought to you by myself, Ali Maxwell, and him, George Ellick. We're off to the putting green, get ourselves warmed up for a massive round at the Belfry for the Ed Chamberlain Classic, uh, raising money for Well Child today. Please, again, if you're feeling like you have a fiver or more to spare, uh, do consider donating to Well Child, which does some absolutely incredible work. And make sure you're subscribed to the pod feed, that you join the NTT's 20 squad if you're feeling particularly EFL loving right now. That's where all the excitement is. Uh, you can join using the link in the description of this podcast, two weeks free trial. Thank you to Betfair for sponsoring this podcast and thank you for listening all throughout this season and for this playoff semi-final first leg recap as well. Make sure you join us over the next few weeks as we enjoy the dramatic end to the EFL season and maybe look back at some of our better or worse predictions. Go out. Well.